You know, I've always loved to ride a bike. For 20 years now, I've been looking forward to the time when I could go and get on my bike and go for about an hour ride. And uh, so, I go that. I do that every day. I go for a ride, and as you would expect in Texas, it's pretty hot, and I'm usually pretty sweaty. Come home, so I would always come in, open the garage, put my bike up, go into the house, get a big glass of ice water, go on the back porch and cool down. But with Randy and the encouragement that he's given us, uh, I've decided to try it a little differently. So really, for about the last year and a half now, I've been coming home and instead of going in the house and getting a glass of water and going to the back porch, I just put my bike up in the garage, grab my water bottle off my bike, grab my lawn chair, open it up, set in the driveway. Start looking for neighbors that I might be able to connect with. In my old neighborhood, uh, I would come home from riding the bike and, and I wasn't intentional about actually connecting with the neighbors. And I used to think that that neighborhood just wasn't as friendly as this neighborhood. But from the very beginning, when we moved into this neighborhood a couple of years ago, we were more intentional about that. And what we found was that when we were more intentional, that our neighbors became a lot more friendly because we were connecting with them. And so the opportunity to just sit down in the front required no more effort on my part. It just changed the location from going from the back porch to the front driveway. Uh, but it's made a big difference in how easily I've been able to connect with the neighbors. The empty chairs there for a purpose. It's to encourage those who might come by to stay a while, to linger, to not just uh, fly by. You know, so I don't ever try to listen to my earphones when I'm sitting in the chair, because that sends the message that maybe I don't want to talk to someone. So I just place the chair there as an opportunity for, uh, to remind me as well as to invite others to let's, let's linger a while together in the empty chair. Will you join us? It is so great to see you. What you just saw there was a picture of the vision of making room for life. Max and I just said, if we wore spandex biker shorts in the front yard, no one would come by. <laughs> that is for sure. So maybe it's not biker shorts for you, but there's still an opportunity for you. In this vision, it's, it's really twofold. Number one, that you would uh, have an opportunity every single day to linger that you would have a chance to uh, cool your jets and to calm down and to catch your breath and to let your heart rate just relax a little bit, that you would soak in some life. But the second part of the making room for vision is all about the empty chair. It's putting an empty chair next to yours in the front lawn and just wondering what God may have in mind that day for a neighbor to possibly meander over to your house and sit in the empty chair and because you're unrushed, you can show them just a simple love and concern and care for them that they might, by the end of that experience, just get a taste of the love that God has for them through you. I think that's all that Jesus meant when he said that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. But I hear all of you. You're saying, you know, Randy, by now we've really captured this vision of making room for life. We want our life back, but we don't know how to get there. 
we just can't seem to find the time. We just don't have the time, Randy. I promise you, we don't have the time. Our lives are different than everyone else's. We just don't have it. And I'm here to tell you, it's an interesting study. I just found that actually every single one of us has one extra hour a day of free time more than the people in 1965. You say, that can't be. It is, but here's what we do. Whenever we get a little bit of margin of time, we always fill it back up with a little bit more of the same thing. And we're here in this series to call us to something very different. So in this message today, I'd like to give you a couple of practical principles that might help you make room for life. I'd love to give you a lot of detailed principles, but each of the principles that teach us on how we might be able to get our work done more efficiently and keep all of our work and activities from getting off sides so we can really soak in some life uh, are different for each person in the room. For, for example, the person who, is the, uh, who works on the clock as an hourly employee, the principles that would work for you are very different than the person on the other end of the spectrum who is an entrepreneur or a business owner. So I can't really do that because it wouldn't apply to everyone in the room. But I have found two principles that will work for everybody, found right in the pages of the scripture. So if you brought your Bible today, I invite you to turn to the New Testament book of Philippians, and we're going to look in chapter 4. As you're turning to Philippians chapter 4, let me let you in on something, if you don't know it, that the author of this book is a guy named Paul. Paul is a type A apostle. He is a workaholic. If you read his books, you get the sense that he is hard driving. When he's writing this book and a couple of other books in the New Testament, he is literally in prison. He is under house arrest, tied to a smelly Roman soldier, and can't do anything or go anywhere. It's called forced making room for life. And you can imagine how excruciating it must have been for him to learn how to just rest and relax. And I think that under that season, he did some of his best work, and particularly the book of Philippians, when God got him just to sit down and relax. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19, he pens these words, And my God will meet all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Wow. And my God will meet all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. This is a promise from God that for his people, for his children that show trust in him, he promises that all of our needs will be met according to the vast riches that are available to him through our faith in Jesus Christ. That's amazing. But here's the catch. In America today, most of us have lost the distinct difference between our needs, say it with me, and our and our wants. The truth is, now listen carefully, I don't mean to be offensive intentionally, and that is this, most of us are working not to fund our needs, but we are working feverishly to fund a chosen lifestyle. And that's what captures all of our margin. Consider the thoughts of Cornell University professor Robert Frank. He writes, whereas most families in the Gilded Age which is 1845 to 1960, had to struggle to make sure their children were adequately clothed, nourished, and sheltered. These needs are no longer the issue for all but a tiny fraction of today's families. Now listen carefully. The bottom 20% of earners now spend just 45% of their total income on food, clothing, and shelter, down from 70% as recently as 1920. Now listen very carefully. He agrees with me. For most families, 
The current economic challenge is to acquire not the goods that we need, but the goods that we want. And this feverish activity, it's what's stealing our margin, only for us to discover that it is a choice that we make. John Stossel uh, uh, made popular some research that was done by Ma- Ma- Money Magazine columnist Jean Chatsky, who polled 1,500 people for her book, You Don't Have to Be Rich, and found that, the more money, that more money makes people significantly happier only if their family's income is below $30,000 a year. But by $50,000, there is no statistical Uh, indicators that it will make you one bit more happy. Then she goes on to write, once you get to that 50,000 level, more money doesn't buy more happiness, she said. Then I like this, happiness researchers. I wrote down in my notes, that's the kind of job I want. What do you do? I'm a happiness researcher. (laughs) Happiness researchers agree with Simmons and Chatsky. Purposeful work is what makes people happy. And finding religion and family, those three things are practical and statistical indicators of what will increase your happiness, not making more money once you get to a certain level. Now there's a number of examples that I can give of this that apply um, to a number of you, but I've chosen one that doesn't necessarily apply to all, but enough people in the city of San Antonio that I think I can make my point, and here it is. We need to have our children in a certain school. It's not a want. It is a non-negotiable need. We have got to get our kids in a certain school. I read a powerful book about this a few years back uh, from two really smart ladies, a mother and a daughter. The mother is a Harvard Law professor. The daughter is a consultant for the famous McKinsey and Company. And they write this book based upon their research. The book is entitled, The Two-Income Trap, Why Middle-Class Mothers and Fathers Are Going Broke. Here's their extensive research and what it showed. First of all, parents today want their children to get a good education. That's a great thing. It's a good thing. And so therefore, in order to get a good education, you have to have your kids in the best schools, right? Makes logical sense. If you're gonna meet this needs of your kids to put them in the best schools, you need to move into that school district. Just so happens that the schools that get the best ratings, homes in those neighborhoods are more expensive. And therefore, because it is an absolute non-negotiable needs, parents do everything they can to move into these neighborhoods so their kids can get a good education. Therefore, because the one income will not provide the resources necessary, both the husband and the wife go to work and they max out their loan capacity to move into this neighborhood so their kids can get a good education because that's a non-negotiable need. Then when it's up happening, they have expended all of their resources to provide this non-negotiable need for their kids and then something comes along and blows their financial house over, and they have nothing more to give. Say the tires need, uh, the car needs new tires, or there's unexpected medical bills, and it creates, as this book says, an absolute financial collapse, not in poor families, but in dozens and dozens and hundreds and hundreds of middle-class families. They write, the two-income trap is thick with irony. Middle-class uh, mothers went into the workforce in a calculated effort to give their families an economic edge. Instead, millions of them are now in the workplace just so their families can break even. 
They go on to say, of course, that single moms are in even greater trouble. They write, if the trend continues, more than one out of every six single mothers will go bankrupt by the end of the decade. And in this book, they talk as a solution that we've got to improve our schools. And I think that is an absolute essential thing. But I'd like to offer another suggestion. And I'm not saying that you follow it. It's just my advice, not from the Lord, just my advice. Maybe, just maybe, possibly, it would be better to put your child in a school that's not ranked number one so that you can have some financial margin and not be so stressed out financially. Now, I say that with a little bit of confidence because of my own situation. I grew up and went to school from kindergarten through seventh grade in one, not even a lesser school, but a rock bottom school on the inner side of East Cleveland. This school was like way at the bottom. And it's interesting, I went to seventh grade, then we moved out to the suburbs, but today I have an undergraduate degree and a graduate degree, and I'm not the smartest, uh, you know, the brightest light bulb of the bunch, but I'm doing all right. And in my foundational education came from a school that was supposed to not have good education available. But what I discovered, and you can tell this to your kids, that education is available in so many places if, in fact, you want it. And what creates safety is you having a good, solid home. And finally, what I would say uh, to you is that some of the best teachers actually don't want to teach in the number one school districts. They have a passion and a mission to teach in some of those more challenged school districts, and some of the best education is, in fact, available in those schools. Just something to think about. The second thing I wrote down, there's a hundred of these things. We need to have a reliable car. Well, absolutely, Randy. I mean, I've got to have a car that works, and I totally get that. But I got your number because I have the same thought. What you're doing is giving yourself a justification to go out and buy a brand new car and getting yourself into loads of financial debt. But you say, I have to do it because I have to have a reliable car. You know, some of you said, I just did that yesterday. <laughs> and you are in deep trouble. You know, the truth is, the, 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 the cheapest car you can drive is likely the one you have and a couple of oil changes every 3,000 miles and rotate the tires is gonna make it very reliable. Whenever I have the urge to buy a brand new car, and I've never done that in my 49 years of life, uh, I go and get it detailed. I find what I wanted was not a brand new car, just a clean one, and that <laughs> helps me in a major way. I don't know if you've heard this story. It's been around for a while, but I think it helps to make the point. There was an American businessman who went down to a little village in, in Mexico on the coast, and in the morning, he was observing a fisherman, a Mexican fisherman fishing. And he then observed that after the fisherman had caught a few fish, he was getting ready to leave for the day. And he went up to him and says, what are you doing? He says, well, I've caught enough fish for the day to feed my family. I'm going to go, and we're going to eat, and we're going to spend the rest of the day together. He says, well, that's crazy. What you need to do is work the whole day. And he says, to what end? He says, so that you can make more money. He says, well, to what end? Well, so then you can actually get another boat and hire some employees and even make more money. And the Mexican fisherman said, well, to what end? Well, so then you can buy a fleet of boats and make even a lot more money. And he said, well, to what end? He says, well, then you can move to America. And when you move to America, you can offer up your company to be sold publicly. And he said, well, to what end? So that one day you might be able to retire to a little small village in Mexico <laughs> Fish during the day and hang out with your family the rest of the day. You see, in America, we have our minds messed up. 
We think that in order to get to where we want to go, we've got to work and work and work and work and work and work and exhaust ourselves in the hope that one day we can have what's available to us right now if we would just stop running so very fast. Earlier in the chapter, Paul gave us the secret of getting out of this cycle. It's found in verses 12 and 13 of Philippians 4. Pay careful attention. Paul writes, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It's very important, folks. Dial in here. You can never get to the place of happiness by chasing more. You get to the place of happiness by learning, learning to be content. That is the secret. Contentment is a key principle for everyone, and if learned, it will create room for life for you because it will keep you from running so fast to get things you really don't need. Now, principle number two is found in the Old Testament. So again, if you brought your Bible, turn back into the Old Testament to the book of Psalms, and we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 90. This psalm was written by Moses, and Moses, if you know anything about his story, read Exodus chapter 18, experienced a season in his life where he was crazy busy. And I think here in Psalm chapter 90, he's giving us one of the secrets that allowed him to slow down and to recapture his life. Psalm chapter 90 in verse 12, Moses writes, Teach me to number my days aright, that I may gain a heart of wisdom. Look at that again and ponder what you think he means. Teach me to number my days aright, that I might gain a heart of wisdom. What is he teaching us? Simple. He's saying, go to the end of your life and plan backwards. And this will really help you hone in on what's important when you realize how much time you have left. Now, a few weeks ago, Max mentioned that he met with his financial planner to kind of look at the whole retirement thing and make sure that he was ready. And, and what he experienced with his financial guy is the same thing I experienced when I did it around the same time. And that is they begin by showing you the day that you are likely actuarially to die. This is a painful thing to see. They get the report done, they go like this, they shove it under your nose, they turn to the first page, and there it is. It's just in bold print. And for me, the year is 2044. I have to tell you, that is just painful to look at. But what Moses is saying is that if I will look at it and plan backwards, it can help me make room for life. I ran across a story that I think beautifully illustrates this biblical principle from the life of Moses, and I'd like to share it with you today. You like a good story? It's better told from a chair like this. I turned the volume up on my radio in order to listen to a Saturday morning talk show. I heard an old-sounding chap with a golden voice. You know that kind. He sounded like um, he should be in the broadcasting business himself. He was talking about a, a thousand marbles to someone named Tom. I was intrigued and sat down to listen to what he had to say. Well, Tom, it sure sounds like you're busy with your job. 
And I'm sure they pay you well, but it's a shame you have to be away from home and your family so much. Hard to believe a young fellow should have to work 60 or 70 hours a week to make ends meet. And it's too bad you missed your daughter's dance recital. Let me tell you something, Tom, something that has helped me keep good perspective on my own priorities. You see, I sat down one day and did a little arithmetic. The average person lives about 75 years. I know some live more and some live less, but on average, folks live about 75 years. Now then, I multiplied 75 times 52, and I came up with 3,900, which is the number of Saturdays that the average person has in an entire lifetime. Now, stick with me, Tom. I'm getting to the important part. It took me until I was 55 years old to think about all this in any detail. And by that time, I had lived through over 2,800 Saturdays. I got to thinking that if I lived to be 75, I only had about a thousand of them left to enjoy. So I went to a toy store and bought every single marble they had. I ended up having to visit three toy stores to round up a thousand marbles. I took them home and put them inside a large, clear plastic container right here in my workshop next to the radio. Every Saturday since then, I have taken one marble and thrown it away. I found that by watching the marbles diminish, I focused more on the really important things in life. There is nothing like watching your time here on Earth run out to help get your priorities straight. Now let me tell you one last thing before I sign off with you and take my lovely wife out to breakfast. This morning, I took the very last marble out of the container. I figure if I make it until next Saturday, then God has blessed me with a little extra time to be with my loved ones. You could have heard a pin drop when he finished. Even the show's moderator didn't have anything to say for a few moments. I guess he gave us all a lot to think about. I had planned to do some work that morning and then go to the gym. Instead, I went upstairs and woke up my wife with a kiss. Come on, honey. I'm taking you and the kids to breakfast. What brought this on, she said with a smile. Oh, nothing special, I said. It was just, it's just been a, it's been a very long time since we spent a Saturday together with the kids. Hey, can we stop by the toy store while we're out? I need to buy some marbles. You know, a powerful motivator for making room for life is to apply the principle of Moses. And that is to go to the end of your life and plan backwards. So that's what I've done. In this container, 1,716 marbles left for Randy Frazee, if the tables are right. So that means this weekend, I need to pull out another marble and throw it away because it's gone. You know what that motivates me to do? It takes me right back to the beginning of the message. It motivates me to go pull out that chair and sit it in the front driveway and soak in life today. It motivates me to get that extra chair, that empty chair, and the notion that maybe a neighbor will meander over and we might just have something to share with each other that God doesn't want us to miss. You know, folks, God has given us all the time that we need. We just need to make the right choice on how to use it. I beg you, I beg you to make that right choice today. 
before you lose all your marbles.